You are listening to The Dan Patrick Show on Fox Sports Radio. Dan Patrick. Dan Patrick. So sports may be hard to come by at the moment. Nothing's permanent. I'm not saying it's permanent. But The Dan Patrick Show is impossible to miss. From our podcast to YouTube to the iHeartRadio app. Listen any way you want, anytime, anywhere. (coughs) Get away from me. Probably at your house. I'm just going to make some assumptions. Dan Patrick. Welcome to the Dan Patrick Show. Hank Aaron, Hall of Famer. I've been watching you show you, you're doing a magnificent job. Bringing you the biggest guests and best sports talk on air. Daniel Jeremiah, star of the NFL Network. If you could get a totally honest answer with Tom Brady on any topic, what would you want to know about? Tom, if you were the quarterback of the Baltimore Ravens with their personnel, how many Super Bowls would you have won there? I bet you if he told the truth, he'd say 10. Really? You've got the, arguably the greatest middle linebacker of all time, arguably the greatest free safety of all time, but what top three left tackle in NFL history in, in Jonathan Ogden. Broadcasting from the Mercedes Man Cave. He just blew my mind there. This is Dan Patrick. Welcome to the program. Already in progress. It's hour two on this Thursday. We spent some time with Ernie Johnson from TNT last hour. We'll talk to Jack Nicholas. 18-time major winner, and it was uh, on this day in 1972 that he won the fourth of his six green jackets. Jim Nance, hello, friends. We'll talk to him what he thinks Augusta will be like in November. He'll join us coming up a little bit later on and call him Dr. Myron Roll, Mass General Hospital doctor. He'll talk about the uh, coronavirus, the impact that it's had there uh, he's a former defensive back from Florida State and uh, in the NFL decided that he wanted to go into med school, and he is now a doctor. Got a poll question, McLevin. Are we going to stick with that from uh, the first hour? Yeah, because I want to see the results change. The question was, would you rather your kid be a doctor or a professional athlete? 57% said doctor. Well, I think that's what you say publicly, but, you know, this is an anonymous poll question. So uh, if I said I, well, I, I threw out if your son could be the second baseman for the Detroit Tigers, would that be good? And then McLovin said, hey, I have a problem with that because they uh, had three different second basemen for the Detroit they're, Tigers. And they're all terrible. Yeah. But you're still the second baseman for – all right. How about you're the left fielder for the Seattle Mariners? Yes, McLovin. Okay, I looked that up because Todd suggested that. They don't even have a starting left fielder. They're oh. also <laughs> terrible. Can you? Can I be a wide receiver for the? Wait. So left field is empty. They just platoon a bunch of random guys, according to the stats. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't watched the Mariners play since Griffey was there. But can I be a wide receiver for like the Jaguars? Yeah, if you want to. Sure. Good luck with that. We spent some time talking about Tom Brady, the interview with uh, Howard Stern yesterday, and you know the point that I made with with this with Tom Brady is. Tom is so good at not telling you anything about football, but Howard was honing in on, let's talk about you, the person in your personal life with your wife. And that's where I think he got some gold yesterday. And, you know, he's talking about, look, we were going to see a marriage counselor. She basically said, Hey, this is all about you. And it can't be, you got to help me out at home. And, you know, just that's sort of what you wanted a window into who is Tom Brady, because the guy we see feels a little robotic there. But what Howard was doing over that two-hour period is 
you're just trying to chip away. You're just trying to get something, and then you follow up on it. And, uh, you know, we got some of that yesterday. Uh, Brady also, you know, this is something that Brady became a victim of what happened with all of his other teammates, and that is Bill Belichick treated this like a business, and Brady, you know, was treating it personally. He had 163 different players on at least one of his Super Bowl winning teams. Only, uh, in fact, no player was on uh, more than three of those teams. So interchangeable parts, and then Tom eventually got caught up in that, that he was one of those interchangeable parts. All right, uh, we'll get to your phone calls, and uh, let's make way for Jack Nicholas, who joins us on the program. Good morning, Jack. How are you? Hey, Dan. How you doing? Where are you right now? I'm at home. I've been here for about uh, three and a half weeks in the house. Are you? What are you doing to kind of keep your mind going? Well, I'm I'm calling uh, Dan Patrick occasionally <laughs> to see if he'll talk to me. <laughs> I know. I had to tell you, Jack. Not today. Call me tomorrow. Here, let's let's do it <laughs> well, on the I, an- I can, anniversary. I can do I can do that again. You know, I mean, I'm not doing anything else. I'm telling you, I just. I'm sitting here, and I think I watched Caddyshack about four times <laughs> and Stripes a couple of times and, you know, uh, a couple, a few good men. I think I've seen that a couple of times. I mean, you know, you've watched, watched a little bit of everything. Is there a putting green or chipping area that you go out and can you do that? Oh, I can, but I don't. You know, I don't uh, – I've got, I've got a little artificial putting green out in back, which I've had for about seven or eight years. I don't think I've ever hit a putt on it. Really? Well, I, you know, I don't. Once I stop playing golf, I just sort of, you know, stop doing that stuff. Uh, you know, this is the anniversary, if I think, from your '72 Masters Championship. But of all the championships, which one do you get the most questions about? Well, I think obviously '86. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that '75 uh, was a a pretty pretty good year, and that Weiskopf and Miller coming down the stretch that was a, that was a heck of a tournament, but. But 86 is the one where I wasn't supposed to win, and nobody expected me to win, including me. Uh, and uh, I found lightning in the bottle, and it, and it worked. But also, when you go out and you just post a score, and then you're waiting, because normally you're usually in that final twosome, you know, the difference between actually being out there competing with somebody or waiting to see what happens. How agonizing was that for you? Well, you know, I think that. Uh, when we started the day, I was four shots back, and I had eight players in front of me. And I thought that was reasonable. And uh, uh, my son Steve had called me in the morning, and he said, uh, what do you think, Pops? And I said, well, Steve, I think I, I think 66 will tie it, 65 will win. He says, exact score I have in mind, go shoot it. So I had a, you know, sort of a, a little bit of a feel. And of course, Jackie was on the bag, and uh, uh, we uh, uh, we got going. We didn't get a very good start. And, uh, we were sort of just even through eight holes. Then I birdied the ninth hole, and then birdied 10, birdied 11. You know, sort of got a little enthusiasm. Then I bogeyed 12, but then I turned around and birdied 13. Of course, then I eagled 15, birdied 16, and birdied 17. And that's when I got into the lead of the tournament. So once I got into the lead of the tournament, I finished, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, it looks like I've got a shot to win. I went into the uh, uh, Jones cabin and uh, sat there and uh, – was sitting in a couch and watching, uh, I watched Tom Kite miss his putt at the last hole, and then I watched uh, Seve, or not Seve, uh, uh, Seve had already passed because he hit it in the water at 15, but but Greg Norman yeah. started to birdie, uh, you know, he made, made, I think, like four or five birdies in a row, 
and I'm sitting on the couch, and I said, yeah, he's making too many birdies with me sitting here. So I got up and walked around behind the couch, stood up and watched the last two holes, birdied 17. I said, whoops, I'm going to stay here, though. And it, but, you know, you know, you, there's nothing you can do about it. All you're sitting there doing is watching. And uh, that's not usually been my, uh, my mode. My mode is you're right, being in one of the last couple of groups and uh, uh, playing for it right down to the end. But this time I was sitting there watching the last few groups, and uh, uh, I'll tell you that's a little harder. What did you say from 1986 Masters? What did I want from it? Save. Save? Like clubs, you know, I, uh, your plaid pants? Well, you know, oddly enough, the only – I have every single golf club that I ever want to major with except one. And you can guess what that is. That's that big putter. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know where it is. I think it's sitting in uh, uh, Billy Scanlon, the tennis player's uh, living room at home. I think I gave it to him one time to play, and I think it stayed in his bag. And, and uh, But I know I got every other club that I ever played with, and that's the one I'm missing. So I'm missing that. I have the clubs. Uh, but from, from from that tournament, you know, I, I, I realized that, uh, uh, you know, if you put your mind to something and uh, uh, you're, you're – you're re- I was relatively well prepared for the tournament, even though I was not in, in, the, in the peak of my game. Uh and all of a sudden, I got to the last nine holes, and I remembered how to play. And I remembered what it took to finish a golf tournament. And when you do that, that is so much fun. Because all of a sudden, I'm saying, okay, I got to do this. I got to do that. I, got, I can't do this. I can't do that. Uh, my abilities allow me to do this. My abilities won't allow me to do this. You know? And all of a sudden, I, it all came together, and I, and I finished the tournament. And that, that was what I, what I came away with is that, you know, I could still do something uh, uh, if you really put your mind to it. But did you know you had lost that to then have to remember to get it back? Well, I think, I think everybody loses it. I mean, if you, if you, I know, you know that your skills start to erode as you get into a certain age. And I was having more fun watching my kids play football and basketball and, and, and whatever. And, uh, uh, so I wasn't working as hard at it, but uh, the skills were there. They were just hidden. And so I had to go find them. And uh, I really wasn't worried about pulling them out until all of a sudden I got myself in contention and I needed to, and I did. So that was, that was really very rewarding for me. Talking to Jack Nicklaus, uh, it was on this day, 1972, that uh, he won his fourth of six green jackets. And you, you get to take them off site for a little while do you get to take them off for a year and then they have to go back to augusta is that how the green jackets work well i never took mine off the site i know that uh uh, i remember gary player the first time he won his uh he got a call from cliff roberts and uh and he said uh uh cliff said to him he said gary we can't find your green jacket do you know where it is he says (laughs) he says Yes, Mr. Roberts, I've got it right here in South Africa. He says, well, you know it's not supposed to leave the property. He says, well, you can come get it anytime you want. <laughs> but anyway, we got a big kick out of that. But, uh, you know, I never took mine off the property. And oddly enough, i tell you a quick story. Uh, I never got my own green jacket. Uh, I, the first year I won, I got a – they put a 46 long on me, and I'm about a 43 regular. And uh, <laughs> so the next, year I, the next year I came back, there was a – a jacket in my locker. It was Tom Dewey's jacket, former governor of New York. And uh, Jack, his jacket fit me perfect. And they never gave me a green jacket. So I wore, I wore uh, Tom Dewey's jacket for the next 25 years. 
And finally, in 1998, oh. uh, they were going to do a, uh, a thing between 16 and 17, a water fountain, you know, a story about it. And I was sitting down with Jack Stevens, who was a the chairman then. He said, I told him the story that had never been presented a green jacket. He said, what? <laughs> he said, all these years, everybody gets green jackets. You never got one? I said, nope, I've never had a green jacket. And he says, so anyway, uh, I went home for the weekend and came back. And there was a note in my locker. You will go to the pro shop, and you will be fit for your green jacket. So the first green jacket I ever had was 1998. That's amazing. Amazing. What do you think Augusta is going to look like, play like in November? Uh, I think it'll play all right. I think the, the fairways will be the question. Uh, I don't know what they'll do. I don't know whether they'll oversee them early or wait until after the tournament to oversee them because uh, a fair, uh, the Bermuda fairways would play beautifully in November. Uh, the, uh, the greens will be fine. There won't be any problem with the greens. Obviously, you won't have the color throughout the, out the course. Uh, but if they can get the fairways good, I think the golf course will play fine. They're going to have uh, shorter days. Uh, there's a lot more daylight in April than there is in November. Uh, so the, the sun will be a little bit of a different uh, problem. Um, probably, probably November, not that much wind. Uh, you know, I, I think they'll have a good tournament. I don't think it's any problem. I'm, I'm delighted that they're going to have it. I didn't think they'd be able to get it in. I thought with all the other tournaments and all the other commitments that, that the tour has, that to put it together it was uh, tough. You know, they put they're putting all the major tournaments in, in except you know the British Open canceled. But it's, uh, I think it's great that they're going ahead and uh, getting the Masters in. In normal times, could. Could you just show up and play at Augusta if you wanted to? I mean, not the tournament, uh, but just show up to play the course. Yeah, any uh, any former champion can come and play anytime he wants, but he can't bring guests. Now, Arnold and I were the only two regular members of the course. We were invited to join sometime during our career, and uh, I can take guests and play anytime I want to. But uh, uh, I guess I'm the only one now. But uh, it's uh, it's just really neat to be able to. Uh, have some friends and say, hey, how would you like to go up to Augusta for the weekend? <laughs> you know, not, not many of them won't drop what they've got to be able to go. Well, I got to stay in the Eisenhower uh, cabin and uh, stay overnight there. And you just walk over to the grill room, and it, it was just a wonderful experience because nobody was there, and uh, the caddies were wonderful. They're betting on you. Uh, I got traded on the first tee by a caddy. Uh, like it, it, it was just, it, it was fun. And the, and the most fun I had was when I went to 12, because 12, as an amateur, we play at the same yardage that the pros do. And when you see when you're up there and you go, it doesn't look that difficult. And then all of a sudden, I'm in Ray's Creek after hitting an eight iron, I go, yeah, I get it. I, you know, it, 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 the optical illusion of it's beautiful, but it, it's incredibly challenging there. Do you have great memories of 12? Oh yeah. I, the first year I played there, uh, I had a, uh, I was playing with a fellow named Roger McManus and Roger hit, hit a shot and he hit it, uh, that went through the green. And I think Roger hit a six, six iron. Well, you know, I said, well, I don't want to hit it through the green. So I hit seven iron, and the ball ballooned right up in the air, and I made it about halfway across the creek. And I said, whoops. And uh, so I figured out that you don't want to be throwing the ball real high in there. You want to keep it underneath the trees if you can. And for some reason, the hole plays much better left to right than it does right to left. Right to left, the ball goes across the green in the narrow side of it, and the green sort of works this way left to right a little bit and away from you. And so a left-to-right shot coming up the greens works in better, and it seems to work with the wind better. But uh, 
Uh, I think I may have hit it in there another time during my career, but uh, it's uh, I didn't hit it in there very much after that first time. You learn what you did wrong, and then you go out and do and practice rounds and try to replicate what you were doing, and just sort of sit there and say, "Okay, okay, I can't do that. I can do this," and, and you and you learn how to play it. But it's a uh, it's probably still uh, I I consider it probably the scariest uh, par three in golf. But, you know, you have all the fully, I mean, you have all the growth there, though, Jack. That's what, it, like, it, 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 it makes it seem like it's an optical illusion of it. Hey, that's beautiful. And then you realize, no, you gotta, you got to put it on a small green. You don't want to go long with the bunker. You go short, it goes into the creek. The wind, as you're looking on 13, the wind above 13T, you just came off 11 with the flag, and you look at that, and I'm going, oh, my God, you could over-process uh, the information yeah. there. Well, everybody overprocesses it, and you just have to, you got to be a little bit lucky, and you got to sort of watch the wind. I don't know, I'm not, and I'm not sure which wind you watch, but you got to watch so that not, you don't get caught in a gust. How many presidents have you played with? Oh, not that many. I, I was uh, I supposed to play with Eisenhower, and he got sick one day, and he ended up pl- going around in an exhibition with Arnold and me. And uh, uh, then I played. Uh, Jerry Ford, I played. I played a lot of rounds of golf with Jerry Ford. We played. We played at Tubble Beach together quite often in the in the in the, in the Crosby. And uh, I played. I played quite a few rounds with Clinton. Just played a few holes with H uh, 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 W Bush. Not played with George. We've been scheduled to play several times and never have made it. And uh, uh, of course, I played. I played quite a bit of golf with Trump. Now, at that of that group, can you uh, can you rank who's the best president you played with? Uh, well, they're all good presidents. I mean, <laughs> golfers as golfer. <laughs> the, uh, uh, I think I think I think Trump's the best player. Okay. All right. Trump, Trump hits the ball quite nicely. He's uh, he's pretty long. He's got a nice golf swing. Uh, he doesn't. He plays golf much the way I do now. He doesn't really care about a score. He goes out and hits the ball. If he hits it out of play, he says, "Okay, just give me another one." <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, he doesn't hold up play. Plays fast. He he just he wants to have fun, uh, much like H. W. He he was not a, uh, a a scorer either. He just tried to. He wanted to play around the golf course. I understand that uh, uh, young George is uh, uh, a single digit player and is a pretty good player now. Oh. Uh, but uh, uh, he's uh, we haven't been able. To, together clinton could have been a good player he has a nice golf swing uh you know i just i i don't think he ever uh, he was he was one who just you know took so many mulligans that he never could <laughs> which is all right you know that was the way he played he had fun and so uh and but jerry jerry ford was a very serious golfer he uh <laughs> he 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 was he was about a 13 and he played with 13 he shoot 84 85 and uh, he uh, he grind, he was a grinder, oh. and he just but he just he just loved he loved playing golf. He, of course, he was an athlete, and he was a good athlete, and he just he, he just loved to play. I, I'll leave you with this: of all the years, and I've talked to you, and everything I've read about you, I I just realized that the mascot of your high school up was Upper Arlington. Is that right? The Golden Bears. That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Is that where the nickname came from? Well, it, it sort of came from there. In 1961, the year before I turned pro, or, or the fall when I turned pro, 
uh, a fellow named Don Lawrence for the Melbourne Age in, in Australia wrote an article about, about me. Mark McCormick was down there, and uh, he called me a cuddly golden bear in the article because <laughs> I was large and blonde at the time. And so uh, first contract I had was with a Revere Sportswear out of Boston, and it was they were looking for an emblem, and we kept going through all kinds of things, trying to find a, some kind of a crest or an emblem. And, uh, uh, you know, I said, hey, guys, you know, I, I like the Golden Bear. I was a Golden Bear in high school. I've been a Golden Bear all my life. Why don't we just stay a Golden Bear? And that's how it happened. Wow. I did not know that. I forgot yeah. all about Upper Arlington and the Golden Bears. It's great to hear from you. Thanks for sharing. And uh, hope, uh, hope you don't have to go back to Caddyshack and Stripes anytime soon. And maybe you add something else to your uh, TV repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> if they put anything decent on, I would. Or, 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 if I, or if I could figure out how to work Netflix. And, oh, no. That's what I you mean, have I'm grandkids not, for. Oh, I know. And I'm telling you, I'm, I'm an I'm a, a <laughs> electronic idiot, you know. I, I am terrible. But anyway, we Barbara and I have been watching them. We turn on a TV series, and we watch about one series, and she says, I don't like that. I said, okay. So we try another one, and she says, I don't like that. I said, Okay. So, you know, we keep fiddling, but anyway, we're we're having we're getting through it, and we're doing all right. Thank you, Jack. Great to talk to you. We appreciate it as always. Okay, Dan. Nice talking. That to you, is uh, Jack Nicholas. Yeah, Paul. If it was possible to like Jack Nicholas even more, what have you been doing the past few weeks? Oh, watching Caddyshack <laughs> and Stripes. Sounds like every friend of mine. We'll take a break here. We'll talk to Doctor Myron Roll, and uh, he'll he's up at Mass General, so he's. Uh, in the in the throes of all of this uh, with the coronavirus, and uh, it'd be, I've seen him interviewed on some of these news programs and uh, former football player. And it's one of those where, when somebody goes to med school, they sort of disappear for a decade. Where you go, hey, where you been? Med school? Oh, I haven't seen you in like eight or nine years. I'm thinking, wow. And he decided to pass on football and go into med school. So we'll talk to Dr. Myron Roll and uh, Jim Nance coming up top of the hour. Take a break, 21 after the hour. This is The Dan Patrick Show. Thanks for listening to The Dan Patrick Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning, 9 until noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. And you can find us on the iHeartRadio app at FSR or stream us live every day at youtube.com slash The Dan Patrick Show. Coming up, we'll talk about some uh, NFL teams are a little bit riled up, upset that Jerry Jones and his son get to conduct the draft together in the same room. They think that's an unfair advantage. When's the last time a team thought that Jerry Jones with his son in a room together for any draft was an unfair advantage? Come on. You guys are soft. Uh, former Florida State, former NFL player, uh, drafted, I think, by the Titans back in 2010 out of Florida State. He's now Dr. Myron Roll, who joins us on the program. Doctor, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. Uh, if you can give us an idea of what the last month has been like which and, and compare that to any other month that you would have on the job. Wow. Uh, it's been intense. I, I just, I'm just coming off a 24-hour shift, um, but our hospital has been transformed. Uh, when you walk in, it's almost like an airport security line. We have to have a mask. Everyone, regardless of your position or title within the MGH National Hospital community, you have to wear this mask. Um, our hallways are bare now because the visitor policy has um, been restricted. You can't have any family members or any visitors. Our outpatient clinics are now done all virtually. 
we'll call our patients with results of CAT scans and let them know that we have to reschedule their cases because operating rooms are canceling elective cases. We're only doing emergent or urgent cases. Our neurosurgical floor is transformed into a COVID-19 only floor, and then there's this surge clinic at the hospital within a hospital to sort of offload some of the heavy influx of patients that have come off the street with COVID-19 or symptoms analogous to it. So, you know, I, as a neurosurgery resident, I, I went into this passion of mine to operate on the brain and spine and the and the peripheral nerves. Um, but now, myself and my colleagues, we've been redeployed and redistributing our our skill set, I guess, or just our, our our time and our energy to helping fight this COVID nineteen effort um, or this COVID nineteen issue that's happening. And uh, it's a hospital wide approach, and it's vastly different than what we've seen in in Boston. It's going to get worse probably in the next week or two. So we're preparing for um, even even more challenging days ahead. But you go to med school for neurosurgery, but now you're doing something with a virus that, you know, you like it feels like you're going back to medical school, but you're doing it in real time with real patients with lives on the line. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I will say that it is a, a change up. Certainly there are some crossover traits between COVID-19 and neurosurgery. For instance, surgeries that happen near the sinus, uh, through the nose, transphenoidals, um, anything that can sort of aerosolize particles, uh, that can potentially uh, infect um, us as, as neurosurgeons. Um, we use a lot of electrocautery and high-speed drills in our cases, uh, and that has been shown to maybe aerosolize some of the body fluids to potentially infect us. But you're right. At baseline, we have to learn um, new, uh, well, not new, but sort of relearn uh, approaches to um, affect change in this upper respiratory illness. But I think to our advantage, we're a teaching hospital, and we have wonderful medical doctors, infectious disease doctors, who are really, really stepping out front and helping us sort of manage that learning curve a little bit so we can kind of come in and not have to do anything outside, truly outside of our scope of practice, like intubating somebody emergently, but, you know, be able to handle some of the, the, the more fundamental aspects of their care. And uh, it's really just about manpower right now. The personnel, we need it at the hospital level, and uh, we have to be able to adapt and adjust. We had Tony Baselli on, the former NFL lineman, Hall of Fame finalist last couple of years, and he contracted the coronavirus. And he said, you know, I'm alone in a hospital room, and I'm thinking, is this where I'm going to die? I, going to your job, you're seeing people, we're seeing this in New York where, you know, the medical staff has to almost choose who they can try to save and who they can't. I, I mean, how, yeah. do you, how do you process that, Doc? That's very difficult, and it's uh, it's even more difficult when, as Mr. Baselli said, when you're alone, when you don't have your family around because they're just not able to be there based on the hospital's policy. These end-of-life and goals-of-care discussions are happening over the phone, yeah. and you're like, man, this is un- unbelievable. But I will say that um, you know these patients uh, have, as you know, a lot of them do, have comorbidities and pre-existing conditions that already put them in harm's way and make them very high risk as a subset of the demographic. And and when this COVID-19 hits, it sort of sits for a little bit, and then maybe after day five or six or seven, to quickly decompensate. So it's challenging, and I hope that these stories that we're hearing, that anecdotal stories that you're hearing, allows people who are maybe not connected to the healthcare industry or not connected to the hospital world can see that this is serious, this is real, Stay away from those beaches that you're going to as convenient. Stay away from those highly pop, um, you know, uh, frequented places that are just full of people. Um, and and really, you know, do your part as as a as a normal citizen. Sort of affect change in your lane because that's important for all of us to do. 
He's Dr. Myron Roll, neurosurgery resident at Harvard, the Mass, uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, a Rhodes Scholar, former NFL safety. Was it sixth round by the Titans? Does that sound right? That's, that's correct. Sixth round, yes, sir. Okay. How close were you to staying with football? Very close. Uh, I played football my whole life since I was six years old. My father is from uh, the Bahamas, but my parents are from the Bahamas. Uh, they started the American Football League back home, and when we came to America, you know, football was a huge part of my life. And my cousin Samari and Antro Roll played in the NFL. I went to Florida State because Bobby Bowden had a pedigree of putting guys in the NFL, Deion Sanders and Leroy Butler, and you know um, all these great, great athletes, great corners and great safeties. So when the decision had to be made whether I was going to stay continue to play or move on to this next career. I prayed about it, talked to my family and friends, and realized that practically I made enough money to pay for medical school. Also, my hands were still healthy enough to actually operate because I always wanted to be a neurosurgeon, and I didn't have any concussions or traumatic brain injury that would prevent me from thinking you know, clearly uh, as I went forward in my next career. So I made the tough choice, went ahead, and uh, went to medicine, and it's been a blessing because now I'm able to uh, advocate now for football as well in a concussion spectrum, but then also be able to take care of people who are very sick, like moments like this. How concerned are you that you're going to contract the coronavirus? I'm very concerned. Uh, We all are. Certainly. I try to protect myself every time I go into a patient's room. You know, there's the thing is coronavirus is, um, doesn't just hit one um, patient and that's like the only, um, pathology or, or um, malady that they have, right? So if they call us as a neurosurgeon, this patient may have a brain bleed or a brain tumor or a, a tumor in their spine or some sort of neurosurgical disease burden, but they also have COVID-19. So I walk into these rooms and I try to protect myself as best as I can. I go in, get my physical exam quickly, get my history quickly, be efficient, get all my tasks done so I don't have to re-enter the room five or six or seven times to potentially infect myself. I got married four months ago, and I sent my wife down oh, to be with her to be with her sister. You know, so I'm, I'm trying to make sure I'm not bringing anything home to her. So, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to make adjustments in my own life um, so I can be able to protect myself and protect the people around me. Being in neurosurgery, I'm curious about, uh, you know, the, the future of new helmets in the NFL, concussions. I get if if the has the NFL asked you about this or you know looking for you to advise in maybe how we make a new helmet that can protect the brain even more, they have not asked me. I would certainly love uh, for them to to do so because uh, I love the sport so much. For sure, I wanted to stay around. It's helped me so much. It's helped my family. Uh, I'm using the traits that football taught me as a physician. And anytime I mentor the young kids from Florida State who I talk to. I tell them that if you have interest in science or medicine or just helping people really think about being a physician or a physician assistant, nurse practitioner, or nurse, something in healthcare because it's, the crossover is just you know really seamless. Uh, but, yeah, I would certainly love to, to help partake in new technology and new ways, innovative ways to, to find out how to make the game safer at all levels, particularly in, in young football, uh, young, you know, young leagues, Pop Warner, the youth football league, because I think that's where it really starts. You know, you sort of have this buildup of, chronic hits to the head that, you know, maybe just gets illuminated once you get to, you know, the high-velocity impacts of high-level college football or maybe professional football. But I think it starts young. So if you look back, kind of go um, upstream and uh, try to figure things out that way, uh, we might be able to uh, rectify the situation and keep the game safe and preserve it. You're kind of a show-off here. 4-0, grade point average in high school. Uh, I think you had the lead role in Fiddler on the Roof, the musical. You go to Oxford. You're a Rhodes Scholar. You're kind of a ball hog, Doc. 
Come on. Well, you know, it, it's it's a blessing for sure. That was I did not sing well as a white Russian Jewish milkman, but uh, it was it was a lot of fun. <laughs> we found something you don't do well. Uh, thank you. Go get some sleep, and uh, we appreciate what you're doing. Thank you, Doc. All right, thanks, Dan. Appreciate you. That's Dr. Myron Roll. I forgot about his two other brothers playing in the NFL. Come from the Bahamas. Oh man, I feel like a loser after that. You're a pretty successful. Guy, yeah, too. I'm okay, but gosh, I think we feel neurosurgery resident and Harvard. And I remember when he made the decision. I'm going, wow, he's going to leave the NFL. And I think it was with the Titans and the Steelers. So maybe he wasn't going to have a long career, but he decided. He was going into med school and uh, road scholar, former NFL safety, and uh, now Massachusetts General Hospital. And you're you're taught, you're studying. This is your specialty, and then the coronavirus hits, and now you're kind of learning what the coronavirus is. What do you do? What do you not do? How can you help? This is, I mean, it, it's an emergency room situation there, but he's a neurosurgeon. Pretty remarkable. Pretty remarkable. All right, we'll take a break. Uh, some NFL teams apparently are upset with the Dallas Cowboys. And Jerry Jones and his son get to be in the same room on the night of the draft. What an unfair advantage. That story's coming up. Thanks for listening to the Dan Patrick Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning, 9 to noon Eastern or 6 to 9 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. Find your local station for the Dan Patrick Show at foxsportsradio.com or stream us live every day on the iHeartRadio app by searching FSR. Other teams are saying it's not fair that Jerry and his son Stephen Jones get to be together in the same home on draft day. Man. It feels like teams are building in excuses if they screw up their draft pick. You you have your boards already. Talked to a source yesterday, and he said, if you have your bleep together, you've got your boards together, you're ready to draft right now. Now, something may change where a, a guy is going to fall in, into your lap or you might make a trade, but you do preemptive conversations with people. Hey, if this guy is here when we take him, are you interested in him? Or if you're interested in him, let us know. Think there's, there's, there's conversations that are going on right now. Now they don't want to let the IT guy into somebody's home because, you know, we're, we're self-quarantining. I get that. There, there's, there's small issues that it's guaranteed to go wrong for somebody at some point in the NFL draft. You know, will they allow you to have a timeout if you have a technical issue there? They're already going to do a mock draft, from what I'm told, just so teams get the feel of what it's going to be like. You're not going to be in the same room. But never would I ever think that somebody would say Jerry Jones and his son in the same room in their home is an unfair advantage. Schefter uh, goes on to say, uh, it'll basically be every person for him or herself in their homes drafting virtually. And that's the change up there. They think that uh, club personnel need to be in different homes while the draft is going on. Come on. Yeah, Paul. Do you think this could work the other way and teams will take advantage of the, um, the timing and the communication? Hypothetically, let's say I'm the Vikings and I call the Bears. With 90 seconds before the, on the clock, 
here's a trade. Got to do it now. And you don't have time to vet it in the room. That I th- Teams could go the other way with this and use it to their advantage. Yeah, I, did, I didn't think of that. I don't know how nefarious teams are going to be when it comes to that with, you know, although ask John Lynch with the Niners and the Bears. So I, I get the feeling, though, somebody is going, there'll be a trade early. I don't know how many trades. I think the wide receivers and the offensive linemen are going to be the stars of the first round here. You have the quarterbacks there. We know where Burrow is going. The question is, how badly does somebody want Tua? And is Justin Herbert going to be a top six pick? And then is Jordan Love going to be in the mix as well? The wide receivers, you got the two from Alabama, C.D. Lamb from Oklahoma. You know, so you, you, you have some interesting skill position players and then a lot of offensive linemen. But I would never think that is Stephen, you know, with a Bill Belichick son, they're going to be in the same room together. Is that an unfair advantage? Yeah, McLovin. Wait, why are Stephen and Jerry in the same room? Like they don't live together. And the last person I'm visiting right now is my parents. They should be quarantined (laughs) just like everybody else. No, I'm being dead serious. Like, why would you bring Stephen as kids? I assume. Like, why is he allowed in Jerry's house? It makes zero sense. I mean, it's a fair point. Yeah, it's a fair point, but. You know, even when my kids came back, uh, two from school and then two that are working, you know, I get nervous about that. But I, I, I don't know what Jerry precautions Jerry's taking to uh, make sure that when if they're in the same room. But that, that's not an unfair advantage. Like, how is that an unfair advantage? Yeah, McLovin. Wasn't there something about Stephen convincing him to take that guard instead of Johnny Manziel? Zach Martin. Yeah, so is that maybe the NFL is what let Jerry pick somebody bad? It's maybe Steven's the voice of reason. I'm, I'm gonna guess he can still be in touch with his son, like like just because they're there, what they get to, uh, almost almost high five or almost hug or almost dap or like what like what, what's the big advantage? Hey, he gets to keep Jerry company. What? Yes, Todd. Can they afford the technology to communicate directly with each other? Should we be concerned about them picking up the bill for that, the Joneses? Well, no, they can, they can pay for that. <laughs> I just think that they – if you have the opportunity – thank you, Todd. If you have the opportunity to be in the same room, then you, you will. If you're allowed to, you will. But I, I can't sit here and go, gosh, the Cowboys are going to kill this draft because Jerry and his son are in the same room going to come down to do you take jerry judy or cd lamb that i mean i can help him out with the first round i'd take cd lamb but that's just me yes paulie (laughs) well like we're not going to hang out with our parents because you know all this stuff we're doing now but like they're employees they're stephen jones is an employee of his father's he's serving as an employee not a son in this role yeah so he may have other employees to his house remember i don't know if the nfl is going to tell jerry jones you can't have people at your house you can't have a house full of uh, advisors, unless that's a, a hard rule for all NFL teams. You're going to be on a conference call. That's what it'll be. You'll be on a conference call. But getting everybody's opinion, knowing who's giving you that opinion, how many people are on the conference call, talking over each other, you know, you're going to have to sort that out. That's why they're doing a mock virtual draft where everybody gets an idea of what it feels like. It's not, hey, we can't get the pick in. You'll get the pick in. That, that's simple. You can hold up a big card that says, we're taking C.D. Lamb. That's it. The, the, the confusion is going to be, or the possibility of disaster is, you know, 
uh, IT, making sure if, if you got Zoom, nobody is going to somehow hack into it. Like, there's things that can happen. But I, I don't think Jerry Jones in the same room with uh, his son is going to be an unfair advantage. Are there other teams that are, you know, have siblings involved in this? I mean, Bengals family ownership, like, I, I don't know if that's an unfair advantage. Matt in Houston joins us on the program. Matt, what do you have for me today? So uh, I sell uh, an audio conferencing service from Microsoft to all the enterprise accounts in, in the Houston market, and it's grown substantially. The biggest challenge that they're going to face is if you've got 10 people from the same team on an audio conferencing, who's going to be able to speak up? Because one person is talking, and they're going to say, like, hey, wait, he needs to say something. This person needs to say something. It's hard for everybody to be communicating at the same time. So if you're up against the clock, you know, who gets the final, final say? But it's really difficult for them to all be talking at the same time. Yeah, but we're, we do that on this show. That's why whenever I call on the Danettes, they raise their hand, I call on them. But thank you, Matt. I have final say if I want to go to them and then how long they talk. But I are they going to have a video screen there? Like I have Fritzy in front of me and I have McLovin and Seton. And, you know, they won't be... They won't be talking all at once because if they did and they talked all at once, it would sound like it would sound pretty weird. Actually. Actually. We got Joe yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, 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 guys, are we taking Jerry, yeah, Judy, or CD uh, Lamb? Oh no, but I had my hand we, up. we can't get the pick in. Oh no, and the Cowboys have not gotten their pick in. I don't think that's going to happen. That's a, that's a draft preview <laughs> of what could happen for some team. <laughs> uh, we were talking all over each other. No, it'll be a. Hey, uh, give me your thoughts. Uh, you went out and saw C.D. Lamb four times this year. You saw Jerry Judy twice. Uh, give me your thoughts. Uh, you know, start with you, Todd. So that that that's how you do this. And then it'll be McLovin would uh, give his thoughts, and then somebody else would throw in something there. Uh, hey, I got somebody on the phone who wants to make a trick. I mean, obviously hypothetical, but that's what it's going to be like, I think. You, but you'll go around the room if if I can see you then that certainly helps out with the communication part of this. But if everybody's on a conference call, you know, being able to try to distribute information and do it in real time to be able to do your job, because if you're a scout, you want to make sure that you've done your job and gotten that information to the right person at the right time. I think the trades are going to be the hard part. You know, do you have a separate line because you have your staff trying to process what you're going to do with your pick. And then you might have somebody saying, hey, I got Detroit on the line. Okay, what? where are they calling into? Is everybody going to have a sheet here of phone numbers here? This is who I call. This is the number for that team or that team. Jim Nance is going to join us. Can you say dogwoods and foliage? Can we get Jim to throw in foliage in November at the uh, Augusta tournament? The Masters is what they like to call it on CBS. Jim will join us coming up here next here. Final hour, Dan Patrick Show.